Welcome to Pastor's Class, a Bible study program brought to you by Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church. We pray this podcast will help enrich and strengthen your walk with Jesus Christ, and that it will lead you to read and study the scriptures more often. For more information about Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. Take your Bibles. Let's turn back to the book of James. And we are in chapter 2. And as we've been going through the book of James, we've seen that James has begun to direct and lay the foundation for the practicality of faith in every dimension of our life. And it's here that in chapter 2, James begins to take us to a place when he says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. So James now addresses the necessity of transitioning our faith, even our academic encounters with truth, into the nitty-gritties reality of practical application in every aspect of our life. And he deals with it now looking at the issue of personal favoritism. And he says, do not hold your faith. Ask somebody, are you holding on to your faith? Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. When he talks about personal favoritism, a misdirected value system when it comes to the place of people and their importance in our lives. And when you begin to have a misdirected value system, it sets the stage to engage in a spirit of separatism and even discrimination. And although that spirit exists in this world, it is not to have place within the body of Christ. It is not to be evidenced in the church. And yet, James feels the need to address it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because how many know, as saints of God, we've come out of this world, but we can still have the influence of the world still upon us. And it translates in the context of how, what happens in the context of their worship experience. Even as they gather as a church, they can still experience this spirit of separatism. And so he says, my, bro- my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That word glorious and James's use of the word glory can be tracked back to a word that we may be familiar with, the word Shekinah. Now, it's interesting, that word Shekinah is not even in the Bible. It is a word that's used by uh, rabbis and rabbinical writings, but it describes the reality of the presence of God, the manifest presence of God in the midst of his people. And so think about it now. In John's gospel, we saw, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. He is, in essence, the Shekinah in our midst. And so he says, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of God, how can you hold your faith in the glory, the presence, the manifestation of God and still have a spirit of favoritism? They they cannot be reconciled. 
So what he does is begin to illustrate this and show us what it looks like. He says, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there is also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and says, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit at my footstool, have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Wow. James gets straight to the point. And so he says here that picture, if you will, a man who comes into the assembly. And, you know, it's interesting because somebody has the ability to direct this person where to sit. And, you know, there is no reference in the New Testament as you look through Ephesians and Galatians and Thessalonica, the church of Thessalonica and Philippi. There's no reference to ushers <laughs> or greeters. But somehow this person has the ability to direct somebody. And it's not, <laughs> I'm sure, even though it's not mentioned, there's a place for ushers and greeters. Amen. God bless them. And, so <laughs> and yet, Somebody here has the ability to direct somebody where to go. And he says, a man comes in, and this man comes in with a gold ring. Now, in the culture of that day, people would actually wear rings on every finger of their hand except their middle finger. I don't know why. I won't even research it. But they would have a ring on every finger so as to indicate the idea of affluence, that they had wealth in their life. And people would actually, because rings were such a way of communicating that you were doing well, people would actually go out and rent a ring. <laughs> Wear it to give the indication that they had wealth. Now think about the idea of renting a ring. Maybe they had shops called rent a ring, I don't know. <laughs> but you go out and rent a ring to indicate that you were doing fine. Now, we laugh at that, but is there anything applicable in our own culture that seems to suggest the same mindset? Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe when we pull out that credit card and use it in a way that suggests that we have more than what we really have. And I say credit cards give us the right to pretend. And so... And credit cards can be used in a wonderful way, especially for the person who is prudent, who's structured, who has order, who has vision and plan and discipline. Credit cards can be a blessing. But for the other people <laughs> who don't have discipline or prudence, they can become a means to convey something that's not reality. And here, imagine people going out to rent a ring to, to give this image that they had wealth. He says, and this man comes in with fine clothes. Ask somebody, do you know what fine clothes are? Well, the word fine here means bright or shiny or radiant. King James Version translates it as gay clothes. And so here it's in this context. Now, when he says gay clothes, it, it doesn't have the reference that you may have been thinking that because there was a time the word gay had a whole nother meaning to it. It got hijacked and robbed 
if you were to look at some old movies, they would say, look at that gay fellow. And it had nothing to do with sexuality. So here he's talking about shiny, bright. It was, this guy was clean. He, was, he comes in and his clothes are indicating he's doing well. So imagine he's got a gold ring on. He's got a great shiny outfit that indicates he's doing well. And whoever is in a place to be able to say where you can sit says, you come and sit at the good place. The good place. And then he says, then there comes a man who has dirty clothes and he's poor. And James is not drawing the line of demarcation between the rich and the poor. He's not saying if a person has wealth that we should disregard him or if a person uh, has nice clothes on, he shouldn't, you know, that in no way and show any kind of uh, regard for him. But he's saying, or, and, and the same thing, he's not dealing with the issue of the contrast between these two people as much as the contrast that is made by the church toward these two people. Right? And so James is showing that they are showing preference because of how a person appears. Now remember, if you can rent a ring, you can appear to be something you're not. And don't be surprised that sometimes we find ourselves envious of people who don't even walk in reality. And James is establishing here that here they are. This man walks in with the appearance of wealth. The other man walks in who is poor and they take the poor man and you say, you sit here or you sit by my foot. In other words, you don't, you don't merit the ability to have a good place. And so James says, when you do that, you're doing it and you are doing it with evil motives. Because why would you show preference to the man who appears to be wealthy and begin to disregard the man who appears to be poor? Evil motives are seen in the fact that you believe that the man who is rich has the ability to favor you or do something for you. So you are, you're setting him up with evil motives because you think you can get something out of this gesture. And so he says, haven't you come to the place where you are dishonoring and, and coming to a place where you make such distinction that should not be in the body of Christ? Did you know the Bible says there's neither Greek nor Jew, bond nor free, male nor female, we're one in Christ. We can include rich or poor. So there shouldn't be an attitude of ill will toward those who are poor or those who are living in scarcity or challenged. But there shouldn't see the same thing of disregard because people have affluence or wealth either. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. That all people are to be celebrated, but, ex but understand we are one in Christ. And they have equal value before the throne of grace. So God doesn't, God doesn't say, oh, the person with, with wealth has more access to the throne than the person who is experiencing a hardship. Matter of fact, James begins to help these people see something. James says, now, when you do this, you come to a place where you have dishonored the poor man. And in so doing, you've got to remember something. He says, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich who oppose you 
and personally drag you into court? (laughs) Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So James takes us there, but on the foundation of verse 5, listen, my my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So what he's saying, uh, take a moment, saints of God, and remember where you've come from. Or remember where you may still be. And in that, as you remember, understand the kingdom value system of the moment. That God did three things for the person who's considered to be poor. First, he chose him. God selected him. He didn't choose him based on how much he had. He didn't choose him on his, on his potential. It was an act of grace. He chose the poor man. But see, he chose the poor man, and in this, understand, the poor man is rich in faith. Rich in faith. And I want to tell you, when it comes down to it, it will not be the material things in your life that's going to sustain you. It's not going to be your wealth or your riches and all those things. It's going to be the reality of your faith because the battle is not the fight of material things. It's the fight of faith. We fight the fight of faith. How many people with material things and accumulation of of material things still lose the battle? Still give up? Still fall out of this life, still, still turn aside and, and give in to the pressures of this world. It's the fight of faith. He said they're rich in faith. They're chosen by God. They're rich in faith and they're heirs of the kingdom. When I look at this, turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1. If you're there, say amen. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 26, if you thought that James broke it down, listen to Paul. He said in verse 26, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise um, according to the flesh, not many mighty, Not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. See how God operates? And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who, has beca- who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he says, remember your calling. Remember where you were when God got a hold of your life. God delights in taking broken people so he can reveal his healing 
He, he delights in taking the people who are in the midst of a struggle so he can show what success looks like. He, he, he delights in taking people who have scarcity so he can show what abundance looks like as a person walks in faith. So he takes people who many times that we would consider to be not candidates for our side to succeed or get where it needs to go. God delights in that. He does that. It's not that God can't also choose rich people. He does, right? He can do that, and he's done that. But many times we see that God takes people who are broken enough to recognize their need for him. And then he begins to turn their world around. So James says it this way. James says, in so doing, understand, have you not dishonored the poor man? Is, it's not, is it not the rich man who opposed you and dragged you into court? There was a practice that was called summary arrests. And that's where a creditor could be walking down the street and he could see a person who was a debtor to him. He could literally grab that person by the, the neck of his clothes and drag him into court. And most of the times, it was rich people doing it to poor people. And James is saying, wait a minute, here you are favoring people who have been involved in the practice of taking people where you are and dragging you into court, who have not shown mercy but have been hard upon you and yet you show them favor. Remember, the reason they're showing them favor is because of evil motives, wrong motives. They think they can get something out of it. And he says, now, these people, they drag you into court and they blaspheme the fair name which you have been called by. They blaspheme, they, they violate, they curse that name. Remember, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Shekinah of God, they take that name and they mistreat it, but you will elevate them. You will give them favor. You will show them places and set them in places of the good places while you reject the dignity of people who are right where you are. It indicates something. If I belittle the people who celebrate the name and I favor people who blaspheme the name, am I not what James says earlier, double-minded? double-minded. And so James is dealing with, now who is James talking to? He's talking to people in the church. Really? You mean church people have these struggles? People in the body of Christ can find themselves caught up with the same mentality of this world system, can find themselves slipping into a place of, of showing favoritism. Ask somebody, have you ever shown favoritism? Uh, did you guys ask? I got kind of <laughs> it may not be between the rich and the poor. You may be shown favoritism between those who get on your nerves and those who don't. <laughs> James says this in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
you are doing well. Now, the reality is, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you treat people the way you would want to be treated? Do you celebrate them the way you would want to be celebrated? And I can tell you, we all want to be celebrated. We want to be appreciated. And if in a, in a hard time or a difficult time, we, wouldn't, we would want people to regard us. But he says, now, do you treat people that way? Do you regard people that way? Will you pursue seeking out or, or being a blessing to somebody? He says, if you do that, you do well. Tell somebody you do well. But he says here, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Wow, James. I mean, James is just hitting it hard right now. He, he's, just, he's leaving no, no wiggle room here. James is saying, understand something, that when it comes down to it, you made those who do well, who honor and celebrate one another as you would want to be celebrated, you do well. But if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, personal favoritism, if you do it with evil motives, understand you are not just engaged in preference, you're engaged in sin. And he says you really can't draw a line of demarcation separating the reality of sin. Now understand, they are sins and they are sins. And not all sins are created equal. And not all sins have the same impact upon a person's life. There are sins that are more impactful than others. There are sins that are more devastating than others. There are sins that are literally worse than others. And yet, at the same time, at the core of every sin is a point of independence against God. It's rejecting the reality of who God is. It could be in a lie. It could be in murder. It's still the same core, dishonoring and distrusting God. And so every sin is linked by that reality that we disregard God. It may have a different impact. It may, it may, have, may have different results of that sin. There may be different consequences. It may be different value levels in terms of the reality of what that sin means to a person. I mean, how many know it may be easier to have somebody lie to you than to have them steal from you? It may be easier to have somebody steal from you than to assault you. So it, there, there are different levels of impact, but when it comes down to it, the root of it, the foundation of it is the same. It is a disregard, it's a rejection of the will of God, is I can do this without God. And he says, when it comes down to that, every sin, every sin is at the same place. So if you keep one and you violate the other one, you're still at the same place. The spirit of it is the same. It's a distrust for God. It's independence of, against God. I can do it my way. I got it together. I'm going to do it my way. Now, in this, James builds and he says, for the one who says, do not commit adultery, also says, do not commit murder. 
Now he's showing and affirming this fact, you can, you can not commit murder, but if you commit adultery, you're still in sin. And is that, I mean, that should be pretty clear, right? So he's saying here, understand you can't pick and choose. And I think it's not as blatant as that for many of us. It's not the issue of committing murder, right? I hope not. <laughs> or even adultery. Hope not. But it can be things that we feel like are not as bad that we begin to tolerate and make excuses for in our life. And those things are sinful. And so in doing that, we, we develop a tolerance for them and we, we almost justify them. And James said, wait a minute, you can't, you can't excuse gossip, slander, uh, violating somebody verbally and, and saying that's all right and then calling something else sin. The same root is distrust in God. You're not walking in a place of security enough, as we saw, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Is that your memory verse? Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so James is helping us to see these things. Then he says this. He says, so speak, so act. Now, I mean, that's a phrase right there you can memorize. So speak, so act, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. I love this. That every word we speak and every gesture of our life will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, that's interesting because he says the law of liberty. The law of liberty is really pointing to the will of God. It's not, not a legalistic system, but the will of God, which is not designed to pull us down, but the will of God is designed to elevate us. See, when you give yourself to the will of God, you, your life is raised up. The will of God is for you. The will of God is the plan, the, the purpose of God. It is to raise you up. It is never to out looking for opportunities to destroy you, pull you down, impede you. The will of God is a blessing. And so it's the will of God that will judge those words, will judge those life choices, will judge the actions of our life. And the goal of our life is to be completely aligned in word and deed with the will of God. So Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth. That's our cry, that your will be revealed in our life, that we would be walking, talking, living expressions of the will of God in everything we do. So speak, so act. Tell somebody, so speak, so so act. He says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Wow. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Turn to 1 John. 1 John, to your right. If you're there, say amen. First John. 
chapter 4. And starting at verse 15. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God shall love his brother also. So here he's showing us something. If you are really in the kingdom, if you are really in the kingdom, as, as Paul says to the saints of Rome, the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. You've got love in your heart. Amen. Amen. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a part of your connection to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. His personality, his nature is one of love. And if you have the love of God in your heart, it's going to manifest to people. Now, I mean, no, love has to be cultivated and developed, right? I mean, love is good. Your ability to manifest it has to be cultivated and developed. I remember a person who would always go around saying, I'm a loving person. I'm a loving person. I'm just a loving person. The problem is a lot of people didn't believe they were a loving person. And based on their actions. See, it's not how you perceive yourself. When it comes to love, you really have to ask other people, do you think, how am I doing? How am I doing? Right? I mean, it's just for the married folks. You can say, I'm a great husband. Or I'm a great wife. But it really doesn't mean much if your partner doesn't think so. Okay? I'm a great husband. Right? But if, if she doesn't believe it or doesn't perceive it, or then understand you are not a great husband. Right? Because the, the test case is right there in your own household. <laughs> and if you are a real loving person, people around you will be able to attest to it. There will be tangible manifestations and opportunities to reveal that you are a loving person. And it's not because you feel things for people that makes you a loving person. It also means you have the ability to exercise mercy towards someone who has done you wrong. That's the nature of God. That's what James is talking about, that you have a merciful heart, that you're able to forgive people when they don't merit forgiveness, that you're able to release people when they're still indebted to you from some wrong. And if you have that kind of love, 
you're walking in the very nature of God and you're not dictated by fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You don't have to fear judgment. You don't have to fear eternity because your love attests to the fact that God has a presence in your life and influence in your life in such a way that you are set for heaven. Now, I want to tell you, a book that will really rock you is that First John, because First John deals with this issue about the reality of your salvation, the reality of the integrity of your walk, the reality of your eternal destiny is inseparable from the presence of love in your life. So if you're a mean Christian, you need to... <laughs> you got some work to do. There needs to be some cleansing. There needs to be some change because heaven is not going to be filled with mean Christians. And so James says you got to be merciful. You got to express the mercy of almighty God. Now let's go back for a moment. How did we get here? James begins the book of James by establishing the fact that difficult challenges will come our way. And the charge for the Christian is to come to a place of seeing the greatness of God in every challenge, that it's a considered all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So your faith is being tested and your faith is testing you. And so situations are happening that are testing your faith. And in the process, you say you have faith and your faith is now testing the integrity of your belief. And now in that process, as you are growing and developing, things will happen and you're going to have a need to have the wisdom of God. You need to say, God, show me what you want me to do. I want your mind, your wisdom. And how many know wisdom is the practical aspects of insight? You can have knowledge but not have wisdom. James has been taking us through this. And as we walk through the process of seeing the wisdom of God and the importance of his wisdom, James talks about the, the blessing of perseverance. Standing and withstanding all that comes your way. And then James walks us through the process of dealing with temptation. And he reveals something. That in the issue of temptation, the source of temptation is never God. There is nothing in God that would make, that would make him uh, submit to evil. It is not appealing. There's no, there's no depravity in God that makes sin uh, appealing to him. So God cannot be the source of temptation, and God is not tempted himself. And it says the issue is not external, it's internal. Each person is carried away by its own desires his own lusts, uh, that word lust, and we drew a line of separation between lust and desire. You can have a desire because the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. The Bible never says God will give you the lust of your heart because lust is a perversion of desire. You can have a pure desire and you can, you can distort it with lust. You can have a pure desire, I'm gonna go back, you can have a pure desire for marriage and you can distort it and then have a lust for marriage. And what, how do I know I have a lust for marriage rather than a desire for marriage? I have a lust for marriage when I will compromise to achieve it. 
when I will compromise to achieve it, I have moved from a desire, a pure desire for marriage to now a lust for marriage. Because that word, uh, lust, epithumia, suggests that something is being sacrificed. Something is being sacrificed for me to get where I want to go. The will of God is being sacrificed. Integrity is being sacrificed. The value and importance of the kingdom is being sacrificed. So he dealt with the issue of temptation. He said, when it really comes down to it, the foundation is our view and perspective of God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadows. So if I can see the integrity of the greatness of God, I don't need to submit to something that is not for my good when God has every good and perfect thing for me. And then James began to turn our attention toward recognizing the word of God, that we've been brought forth by the word of God. And that, that word, that idea to be brought forth, he's drawing a contrast between the idea of sin being brought forth. Remember, your heart and lust get together. They conceive a child. His name is called sin. And when that child grows up, he's now renamed and he's called death. So now, when your heart and lust get together, they have a child called sin. But when your heart and the word get together, they produce righteousness, salvation, and a new beginning. So he says, you've been brought forth by the word of God. Brought forth, given new life by the word. And then we see that word now begins to illuminate us and show us things that we have to address in our life, things that need to be changed in our life. He said, remove all wickedness and all that remains of ungodliness. Change has to happen. That's the working of the word in our life. Then it needs to be activated. We have to do the word. Not just be a hearer, but actually apply this word in every aspect of our life. He's building, 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 and building to the point where he comes to chapter 2 and says, now this is how it is. Don't hold on to your faith in such a way that you violate the foundation of what has been established. If you have faith, it's going to be revealed in how you live life, how you deal with and how you treat people. See, if I have a right relationship with him, then I'm going to pursue right relationship with people. They may not always achieve it because it's twofold, right? Right? I can, but I should be on the part of trying to pursue it because I am right with God. And that's an indication of my stand. So 1 John says, I have written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And when he says that, he's not just talking about the fact that you prayed the sinner's prayer. He's talking about how you deal with people as an affirmation that you have eternal life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Tell somebody, don't show personal favoritism. Among the saints, don't preference. These are, this is the church, the church. There shouldn't be the elevation of people because we think they can do something for us. That we don't try to manipulate the circumstances or favor them because we're trying to get something out of them evil motives. That's the foundation of it. You know, it's interesting. Talk about setting at a certain place. And you got to understand things in context. Because when you look at this, 
you want to make sure you interpret this within the context of the spirit of what James is saying. I remember a situation where somebody came years ago, came into our church, and the usher had directed them to place the set, and they got upset because they said, no, I want to sit on the front row. And if I can't sit on the front row, there's something wrong with this church. Well, it doesn't take long to realize that predates our church. Something happened way before they got to our church, and now they were judging every church based on where they could sit. And the response was, you know, that we have these seats so our leaders can be able to respond to ministry. There's a purpose they're setting up here. That's, and, but that person could not accept that. They told me there was something that needed to be healed within them. There's something that needed to be adjusted. And, I, and there are times we're going to find situations that we got to make sure as we seek to be faithful to God's word that we don't platform somebody else's bondage and let that manipulate our ability to be faithful to what God has called us to do. James wants us, wants us to so act, so speak, so act. So speak, so act. You can memorize that. So speak, so act. So speak, so act. Do you have faith? I'm, a, I'm asking, do you have faith? So speak, so act. Do you have love? So speak, so act. Do you have forgiveness? You just said it. So speak, so act. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to Pastor's Class. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more messages and Bible study teachings, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. If you live in the D.C., Maryland, or Virginia area, Come visit us at our home location, 5340 Baltimore Avenue, Hyattsville, Maryland, 20781. Pastors Class is a weekly Bible study that occurs Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. at our home location. We would love for you to join us. May God bless you and guide you as you continue to study to show thyself approved in the grace of Christ Jesus.